You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. have a bit of an abbreviated message today in light of the wonderful testimonies of baptism, so that is so fine and so good and so proper. And um, as we jump into our second week here on this series that is called Less is More, when you really think about it, one of the more powerful themes in Scripture is that truth, less is more. One of the more powerful and really evident themes found within God's Word is the truth that less is more. Because why? Well, that is the gospel, loved ones. Uh, in its kind of essential understanding, the gospel is the whole point that less is more. Consider these statements from Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Here's what Jesus says, okay? Consider if you can hear less is more through everyone. Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Hmm. Hmm. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So less is more. Absolutely. Jesus says this, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, unless it dies, it remains alone. But if the grain of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. Less is more. It's amazing how God works. It's amazing the economy of God and looking through the theology of life. Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, become less. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So denying self, following Christ, less of self, more of Christ, more of life. Jesus says this, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will, this just in, will inherit eternal life. Wow. We've heard that in testimonies this weekend through, through, through baptism. People have been shunned by families for Christ, and Christ looks at them and says, you have lost that less, but now here's what I give to you, hundredfold, oh yeah, and eternal life. Less is more. Again, Jesus says in another way in Gospel of Luke, he says, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, will save it. Less is more. This is the gospel. We become less, and yet we receive eternal life. Now, few people have lived up this truth more than John the Baptist. We're also going to call John the Baptist during this series, J the B, all right? But John the Baptist, John the Baptist is a man who lived this truth out as much as anyone in Scripture. So we follow the example of John as he follows the example of Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, and Lord willing, we will get through the first nine verses. Our sermon title is this, The Prophet Appears. The Prophet Appears. Last week, the prophet was announced. It was announced he is coming, and now he actually is ready to begin his ministry. And we're going to see uh, three things from our text today. I want to give them to you now. I don't have a lot of time to waste. Three things. We're going to see this, the word, the way, and the warning. The word, the way, and the warning. Here's point number one before we read the text or part of it. Point number one is this. The word comes to the lowly. The word comes to the lowly. Look at Luke 3 verse 1 now, okay? Here's what God's word says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysianus tetrarch of Abilene. You still awake? Okay, good. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. 
All right. You read God's word in verse 1 and a little bit of there, verse 2, and you're like, what's up with that? Wow. What are all those names? Why are they there? That's a lot of names, a lot of titles, a lot of positions. In fact, Luke, who is an historian who wrote the gospel, Luke, obviously, he also wrote the book of Acts. He lists seven rulers in total here, which again is a lot. The question we have, why is this here? Why? Every word counts in God's word. Why has God taken the time to write down these seven rulers in this way? And why is it here before us in the context, again, of John the Baptist? Well, part of the reason we find out why, because every name listed here was infamous for wickedness. Every name in this list was really used in some way in corruption, power-hungry, evil, um, just, just uh, tyrannic rulers over the people. Remember, it's describing the context in which John the Baptist was born, and now his ministry is going to occur in. It's this iron grip that was over God's people in Israel. Notice as well that Annas and Caiaphas are mentioned as being the high priesthood. Now, if you know your Bible, you're like, what, two names? There should be one high priest. Why are two names mentioned here? This describes the religious chaos and dysfunction that was also occurring at this time. Annas was the former high priest. Caiaphas was his son-in-law, but Annas couldn't give up the control, so he kind of stays in the system, and you have a system of nepotism here, of the greed, of the, again, corruption found within the Jewish religious system itself, and Annas and Caiaphas would both be instrumental parts in seeing Jesus Christ crucified as well later on in the Gospels. (coughs) It's just showing us here the context, again, with which John would arrive in. Now think of this, too. This was the state when Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist, was commissioned to start his ministry. This is the setting, too, of when the first foundations for Christ's church was laid. In the midst of such darkness, in the midst of such, again, chaos, in the midst of such evil, we're learning right here again, God's ways are not our own. I mean, we would never choose to do it this way. You're kind of sending John the Baptist into the lion's den. I mean, he doesn't stand a chance. And we know later on in Scripture, John himself would get his head cut off by one of these guys listed. Why would God do that? Because God is God and we are not. Because God is perfect and we are not. You know, some of us right now, we feel like we've been thrown into the lion's den. Some of us right now are like, how could I ever get in this situation? Why would God ever allow this? I mean, we heard that even in the testimonies here this morning. So beautiful. It isn't amazing and remarkable that the positions that God places us in all of a sudden, according to his will and his perfection, his sovereignty, he uses to produce a glory and a beauty we would never see otherwise. Right here from the outset, we see that the Lord does things we wouldn't do, but he does it because this is when he gets his glory. Oh, to trust him and to believe that John the Baptist being thrown into the lion's den, so to speak, was precisely and exactly in the will of God. Can you see your life? Can I see my life like that right now or in the past and when it happens in the future? thrown in the midst of chaos, yet, listen, yet precisely in the will of God. It takes faith. But in the midst of all this context, the Holy Spirit's going out of his way to list all these rulers, but then we read at the end of verse 2, okay? So notice, all the power leaders that are surrounding again Israel at this time, and then the end of verse 2, it says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, can you see less is more right here in verses one and two, all these high-powered rulers, all the ones governing the land, all the authority, the riches, and the pomp. But then you have John the Baptizer wearing camel's hair, eating grasshoppers in the barren wilderness. Listen, and the word of God comes to him 
Isn't that so much like our God right there? The word of God passes over the rich and the elite and those in their pomp and all the big uh, authority people of the day. And the word of God comes to someone that people don't even know exists, John the Baptist. There he is, this obscure, strange man out by himself. The word of God came to him. That's a, almost the exact phrase. The word of God came to Isaiah. The word of God came to Jeremiah, these big prophets of old. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the secular world, in the midst of the evil, the word of God enters in. Again, this strange, crazy, loner man receives the call as God's prophet. Think also in the context of the New Testament, this peasant couple from Nazareth. They receive the call to raise the Son of God, Mary and Joseph. The lowly despised shepherds, no one wanted to be with shepherds. They are the first people to receive the call regarding the birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The uneducated, unimpressive disciples, tax collectors and fishermen are commissioned to preach the gospel and to see the church grow. Look at what our God does. The word of God reaches the lowly. I love this truth. I love how the word of God comes to the broken, to the humble, to the destitute. Again, so often the rich, the powerful, the elite, they have no need of God. They have no need of God because they want to be God. And so the gospel might be preached to them, but it is heard but not really received. It is passed through their mind, but it is rejected. It is scorned. It is mocked. It is laughed at because they don't find themselves in a place where they actually need someone beyond themselves, but for those who have been broken by life. Again, we often say around here, people accuse Christians as Christianity is a crutch. Oh, no, 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 it's way worse than that. <laughs> Christianity is not just a crutch, it's a wheelchair, it's ICU, it's, it's all we got. We are corpses apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a compliment saying Christianity is a crutch. Are you kidding me? It's so much worse. See, but those who understand those who understand. Think of how this theme all through scripture. Jesus teaches the proud Pharisee who stands up and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like this man over here. And he's I do this, I do that. And God's like, I'm not looking at you at all, dude. I'm not looking at you. The humble tax collector is in the corner saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, beating his breast and overcome by his own sin. Jesus is like, I'm working in that guy. I'm working in the guy who's broken and humbled and knows that I am God and he is not. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Spiritually speaking, those who know they have sin that they need to be healed from. The psalmist cries out daily, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The word of God comes to the lowly. Again, the baptism testimonies this weekend, this is who the word of God comes to. Those who know they need Jesus Christ. Those who know they have sin that needs to be healed and forgiven and placed on Christ. They look to him and the word of God enters in and the testimony arises from their hearts. I am now living for the first time ever. Life has never been harder. Life has never been better. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God comes to the lowly. Again, John the Baptist, here he is, unknown, unheard of, unimpressive. In fact, just strange. And the word of God comes to him. As one commentator said, John the Baptist was one of the hinges on which history turned. Just think about that. This crazy man in the wilderness, again, eating bugs, and he is set apart by God to be one of the history makers, defining really the turning point of history. Quoting the screen for you from Charles Spurgeon, on this theme, he 
say this, on the theme, loved ones, of God works within those who know they need him. God works within the broken. Spurgeon said, well, he quoted the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that. Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning blessed are those who know they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the destitute. Blessed are those who are mourning over their sin. Blessed are those who, again, are so broken. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See what's happening here? The people who know they need Christ, they are the ones who receive and find life with all its riches and treasure, Spurgeon says. Okay, so, so happy, fulfilled, blessed are those who know they don't have it, right? And then he goes on to this kind of understanding. God blesses us all up to the full measure and extremity of what is safe for him to do. So those, those who know they have nothing and God can fill. He says this, if you do not get a blessing... It is because it is not safe for you to have one. God um, humbles the proud, but he exalts the humbled. Right? So think about that right there. That's such a good point. If we don't have a blessing, is it safe for God to bless us, or would it become about us, or would it become about the Lord? Next point of this quote, he says, when a man is sincerely humble, just this truth is so key. Just think of John the Baptist here. When a man is sincerely humble and never ventures to touch so much as a grain of the praise, there is scarcely any limit to what God will do for him or her. Think about that. The word of God comes to the lowly. Humility makes us ready to be blessed by the God of all grace and fits us to deal efficiently with our fellow men. I love this. True humility is a flower which will adorn any garden. For John the Baptist, his flower would even be planted in a seemingly soil that was only growing weeds and corruption and evil and power-hungry leaders. And yet God says, he sees, John, you've been set apart, and you I can work, and you I will fill, and you I'll receive glory, and you I will use. Can we look at our lives right now, and maybe this is some insight into why we're not seeing the things that maybe we hope to see? Maybe why some of the things that have occurred in our lives that have been difficult because the Lord is trying to produce in us a humility that creates a soil that allows him to burst forth from our lives an incredibly beautiful, supernatural flower. This was John the Baptist, and this is a very, very powerful insight into one of the major themes of Scripture. Less is more. The word of God comes to the lowly. Notice this too, John on his own, here's hope for us, John on his own is nothing. But John the Baptist with the word of God and the spirit of God, well, he becomes a world changer, he becomes literally a history maker. And loved ones, we're the same. With the spirit of God and the word of God, and there's so much the Lord will do with those who are surrendered to him and understand that apart from him, we can do nothing. So, the word of God comes but what does the word do? The word does this. When it's received with sincerity, it uses the faithful to prepare the way of the Lord. Point number two. So now the way. We've seen the word. Now the way. The way is prepared by the faithful. Look at verse three now. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice the first phrase there. And he went. That's key. John commissioned and John could have sat there and be like, ah, I'm afraid. 
Uh, second thought, God, I think I'm going to stand here in the wilderness. It's safe. I can just hang out here and do my thing. But notice, and he went. So John was commissioned before he was born, and now his ministry begins. This is why his father, Zechariah, filled the Holy Spirit of God, prophesied over him. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah said, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And here's John. Here's this moment. And he went into all the region to begin to proclaim the message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ and prepare the way for the Messiah. And John went into the region, to all the region. It's hard for me not to think of our commission as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, loved ones, we've been set apart to... You know what's so interesting to me? You can look at John the Baptist and say, well, obviously he was unique, and he was. And obviously, he had prophecy set over him, and obviously, God had chosen him before he was even born, and he had this special ministry upon his life, and he would be the forerunner of Christ, and Isaiah prophesied about, about uh, John 700 years before he was born, so obviously, that's John's role. But wait, let's just do a little New Testament study of what we are called to do and who we are before Jesus Christ, everyone here right now who's alive in the Lord Jesus Christ and born again in him. Let's do that through the book of Ephesians briefly here. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing, notice, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wow. Okay. Hey, John the Baptist set apart before he was born. Guess what? You're alive in Jesus Christ? So are you. You and I have been set apart before we were born. In fact, before the foundations of the world, we have been chosen in God. Notice that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you can't just say, well, that's John the Baptist deal. He had a special ministry. So do we. We have a special ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians 1. Chosen before the world was formed. Unbelievable. And here you are now, alive in Jesus Christ, we pray. And Ephesians 2 then says this. Notice, Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, God's created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's incredible. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So every person here alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, born again by the gospel, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, and God beforehand, we are created in Christ for good works that the Lord has predestined for us that we should walk in them today with the life that we have. So we can't just look at John the Baptist and be like, well, that's John the Baptist deal. It was. Listen, loved ones, everyone alive in Jesus Christ, that's your deal and my deal too. We are set apart for the furthering of the gospel to prepare the way of the Lord. You say, well, John the Baptist, he was preparing for the first advent of Christ. I mean, that's happened. Yeah, yeah, but there's a second advent of Christ coming. Jesus Christ is returning, and we are called to proclaim, prepare the way of the Lord, because Christ is going to return any day. Let's take our commission for what it is. It's special. It's powerful. It's beautiful. There's an urgency to it. Notice it says next that John went into the region around the Jordan, the Jordan, the Jordan, the Jordan River. Warren Wiersbe has brilliant insight here. He points this out. He says, centuries before Israel crossed the Jordan, and when Joshua led them towards the promised land, there was like, as they crossed the Jordan, it was like a national baptism. It was like the whole nation being set apart now to receive what was promised. They entered into Canaan to receive the physical promised land. Now you have John the Baptist centuries later, again, surrounding the Jordan and having this baptism he's performing, and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance, of sin, listen, 
to prepare the people to enter into the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual promise. Again, God's word, how it all fits together is just, there's nothing like it. Supernatural, awesome unity. So the physical promised land, which is really Canaan, again, which is really pointing to the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ found, again, in Christ. And John's preparing the way for this moment. I love here we're in this text and John is baptizing people and we're here on baptism weekend. So beautiful, so right. Not planned ahead of time, just the way it works. Thank you, Lord, for that. Baptism in John's day, it was common. Listen, common for Gentiles, not common for Jews. A baptism was almost entirely for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. You got to know, it was really uncommon for Jewish people to be baptized because that was a radical rededication to the Lord. See, for a Jew, if they got baptized the way John was doing it, they're essentially saying, I'm as bad as a Gentile heathen. And if you know how Jewish people viewed non-Jews, I mean, not talking to them, not being with them, like curse be upon them if they even touch them. And so for them to be baptized in this way, they are almost uh, uh, lowering themselves to the level of a Gentile heathen. This just shows you how powerful John's ministry really was. This shows you how much of the Holy Spirit was with John in the momentum and the spiritual fruit that was occurring around him as all these people were coming out to him and recognizing God's hands upon him and his message is right. What was John's baptism, by the way? John's baptism was different than the baptism we see today. John's baptism was a a baptism of preparation. He was preparing people for the coming Messiah. His His message was repentance and forgiveness. Listen, to be ready for Messiah. So to put it another way, John's baptism was people um, being immersed in water, and with that they were saying, I want to be right with God. I want my heart to be cleansed of sin. I want to be prepared to meet Messiah. Okay? Where today's baptism, as we see today, new covenant in this church today right now, post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, people are saying not, I want to be right with God. People say because of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, because he paid for my sins, they stand in the baptism tank and they say, I am right with God. All my sins have been cleansed. All my sins have been paid for. I stand now symbolizing to you this fact. But in John's day, the baptism was, I want to be right with God. I want to be cleansed of my sin. I want my heart to be prepared to meet Messiah and then be transformed into eternal life. The baptism of John is getting the heart ready. Look now at verse 4. So he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance in the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, here we go, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here's, Here's what John's doing. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. Notice, in all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Loved ones, notice this. All John is at the end of the day is a voice. That's how he's described in Isaiah. A voice. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. Just a voice. John's a voice. His whole life is a sermon. That's beautiful. This is where, again, we can go, oh, that's John. John. John's whole life was a sermon. Yeah, yeah. You and I alive in Jesus Christ, our whole life is a sermon too. You realize that? We got one note, man. We got one message ultimately. We got one thing at the end of the day that only matters that we say and live through our lives. It's Jesus Christ. Let's ask ourselves right now, how's the message going? How's our, how's our life message going? 
Are we shining Christ? Are we radiating Christ? Are we a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord? Because we are to be. Yeah, yeah, John the Baptist did it, man. He did it pretty powerfully. But you and I, we're not getting off the hook for this, man. Again, this is our commission. This is upon our lives. This is what we're called to do. It's interesting. In ancient times, when a royal procession was coming, the roads were, were to be prepared as smooth as possible. That's where this language is coming from here in verses 4 to 6. So we had royalty coming in. Make sure everything looks good. Get the road smooth so it's prepared for the, the, the status of the leader of the king who's coming. I think of the preparations made in our day when important people, royalty, uh, major world leaders come to town and all the preparations that are undertook to see this happen. I remember when the Pope came to Canada several decades ago and he was going up north where my parents have a place up there and I remember just, I, couldn't, I couldn't get over how much effort what went into roads for sure, Jane, everything be prepared, the Pope's coming and millions and millions of dollars, unbelievable. But here, the physical roads are not in mind. But it's the spiritual roads that are to be prepared for the coming King, Jesus. Notice, too, this isn't like, let's fill in some potholes. No, no, this is, notice the text, mountains flattened, valleys filled. Wow. Spiritually speaking here, the spiritual roads in the nation of Israel were a mess. They're in total disrepair. But this is why John came preaching the way he did. Prepare the way, prepare the way. Get ready, repent. Prepare your heart for the king. And notice why, at the end of verse 6, notice why. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See what's happening here? Because the angel said to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, because the name Jesus means the Lord's salvation. Jesus Christ is salvation. This is why Simeon, he takes up the Christ child, and he says, now I can die because my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation. John says, prepare the way, prepare the way. Man, mountains flattened, valleys filled, because Christ is coming. The salvation of God is coming. You're here right now. You've never set eyes on Jesus. The moment you set eyes on Jesus with faith, you see he is salvation. He is the answer to your sin. He is the hope that eliminates your despair. He is the one that gives you victory over death and Satan and sin itself. And he allows you to live for his glory. And one day soon he returns. You will see him and you will be his friend. And his, you will be the child of the Lord. And you will be the one to understand that I am now living in death is not to be feared. Because Jesus Christ himself is salvation. Salvation from sins. No greater calling life for us than to prepare the way for others to meet the Lord Jesus Christ before he returns. Because when he returns, it's, it's over. No more chances. Let me ask you, lover, let me ask you, how is God using you in your life right now to prepare the way of the Lord when he comes? We're not just saying, John the Baptist, you did that, that you're done. No, all of us right now. This is the theme running through this text. The prophet has appeared. We need to appear to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to call others to be ready to meet the Lord. I ask you now specifically, who in your life are you ministering to? Who are we praying for? Who do we love this Christmas season? We are entering into one of the most important gospel times of our year. More people open to the idea, even now in our secular world, there's still so many hurting, in despair, a verge of, 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 of taking their own lives, all this context and climate around us. Who are we ministering to? Our Christmas initiatives, loved ones, that's not just like, well, that's a nice thing to do. This is a chance for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus for the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
asking you again. I'm asking myself right now. I'm right with you here, right with you. God, who do I need to love? God, how can I do this more? God, who am I reaching out to? Who am I praying for? Who needs to hear the message? Who can I say, listen, you got to hear. You got to hear, man. Christ is coming. You got to hear. Regardless if they like us or not or spurn us or, or, or mock us or reject, it doesn't matter. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? What action will we take, like today, to start understanding the Lord has commissioned us with his gospel to see people saved in the Lord Jesus Christ? We are preparing the way. The church is preparing the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you know why this is so important? Well, because when the word of God comes, this is what equips us, and then the way is before us, the way to prepare for Jesus Christ. But why do we do this? Why the word and why the way? It's our third point, and it's serious. It's this, because of the warning. It's because of the warning given to the pretender. See what John's doing? He's like, why the effort? Why the boldness? Why is such the, the seriousness? We'll look at verses 7 to 9. It's the warning given to the pretenders. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, verse 7, you brood of vipers. We know in the context of Matthew's gospel, he's speaking primarily to Pharisees and Sadducees there. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, notice, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, Verses 7 to 9, this is vintage John the Baptist preaching. Fill with the fear of the Lord, man. Notice the phrases of warning in these three verses alone. Notice, brood of vipers, wrath to come, axe, cut down, thrown into the fire. Not exactly a seeker-sensitive message, right? (laughs) Not exactly. What does every phrase speak of there? Judgment. Serious warning. Every phrase speaks a serious warning. Look at what John also says in Luke 3, verse 16. Shouldn't have to turn a page. Luke 3, 16. Notice he says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier, that's the Christ, than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Jesus Christ is the mighty king. There's none like him. He's so powerful, so beautiful, so awesome. Notice, he, Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, he says, I baptize you with water. That's just preparation. Christ is coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and bring salvation to those who have faith. Literally conquered over death. John's like, I can't do that. Notice, and fire. What does the fire mean here? Verse 17. Christ, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn. Notice, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We learn three things from these couple verses right here. Notice we learn that Jesus is king, no one mightier than him. Jesus gives life, he baptized with the Holy Spirit. But notice, Jesus also is the total authority and judge over eternity. Look at these verses, you can say, whoa man, that's like fire and brimstone. Actually, what it is, is incredibly biblical. It's just right here in God's word before us right now. Look at how serious John is about this. And Jesus, Jesus reiterates all this through the Gospels as well. They give the warning. This is what love does. Love doesn't watch a person float over the falls and just die. Love does everything they can to warn and save the person from certain death. 
And this is what happens right here in the love of the gospel before us right now. Again, back to verses 7 and 9, the clarity and the reality of what's happening. John is essentially saying, repent. Why? Because hell is real. Repent because salvation from hell is also real, and it's found in one person, Jesus Christ. So he says, brood of vipers, imagine snakes, poisonous snakes, fleeing from fire, trying not to be burned. Who warns you to flee the wrath that is to come? Then he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Why is this so critical? Because, because true repentance must result in fruit from our lives. Jesus said in John 15 that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's why we're exhorted in, in Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. This is the heart of the issue right here. I mean, John looks at the crowd before him and says, don't sit here and tell me because you think you're Jewish, you're going to heaven. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, 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 This isn't about birthline right now. This isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about some kind of external morality. You're not saved because you go to church a couple of times a year. You're not saved because you show up for a baptism service, whatever. You're not saved because you say certain prayers and go through routines. John's like, no, no, no. No, 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 let's, let, let's get it right on the table. If God wanted to, man, he could raise up stones to cry out praises to him. And we say right here, right now, again, again, again. Do you know that you know that you know that you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't rely on your faith of your parents. You can't rely on your birth line. You can't rely on your ethnicity. You can't rely on your morality. There are some here right now, you are relying. I'm a good person. You're not good enough. Neither am I. Well, I'm better than the person beside me. You're not good enough. Neither am I. You'll never be good enough to enter to heaven because heaven is perfect. You got to be perfect to get to heaven. That's why we're in so much trouble. That's why we need Jesus Christ. This is, why, this is why John says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Who's saying here? If you're not getting right with the Lord through your son, Jesus Christ, man, you don't stand a chance. Anyone who stands before God and says, well, I did this, I did that, I'm, I was born this, I was born that, and he says, no, no. They'll be cut down and thrown into the fire, the unquenchable fire. Not my words, God's word. Why is the warning given? Because God loves us so much. He loves us so much. The warning is given to help us to understand the grace that he offers in turn and in place of judgment, then we can be saved from the Lord. Listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The story I'm very fond of, and I believe I shared with you before, but I have no apology in sharing it again, is the story of William Haslam. He was a pastor in the Church of England in the mid-1800s. He was a conscientious, smart, historical man. He loved history. He, he was faithfully serving in the church, but the one thing he wasn't was saved. 1851, nine years after his ordination as a, as a pastor, clergy member, he was preaching from the gospel of the day. His text was, what do you think about the Christ? As he's preaching during his own sermon, the Holy Spirit opened his spiritual eyes to see the Christ of whom he was speaking. Instantly his heart was moved to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing part was, the change upon the preacher was so obvious that a local preacher who was in the church jumped up and shouted, the pastor is converted, Hallelujah. And the voices of three to four hundred of the congregation began to shout praises in unison. And the pastor Haslam himself joined in the praise. The people sang, worshipped, and exalted their God over and over again. News spread like wildfire. The pastor was saved. The pastor was saved. Imagine that. Revival broke out lasting three years, filled with God's presence. 
And this Reverend Haslam was used to minister to other clergy members who were not truly saved in Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit is the fruit of our lives, an indication that we are living on the mission that Jesus Christ has set apart for us. The warning is given to the pretenders. You know, in a loving way right now, I wonder, who are the pretenders here today? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But the Lord does. I don't even say that in a derogatory way. But those maybe who have never really sat down and said, what does it mean to be saved in Jesus Christ? And is it just kind of saying certain words and doing certain things? No. No. It's been giving a new heart by the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's turning from sin and begging that Jesus would save you from your sins. And for all of us, loved ones, we are called to prepare the way for Christ. Again, what is your role in preparing the way for Jesus Christ, where you are right now, this season, this life? Who is God asking you to love, to minister to, to pray for, to reach out with, to humble yourself before, that you might love and extend? And why would you do this for me? Why would you be so kind? Because Jesus Christ loves me, and I want Jesus Christ, that you would know Jesus Christ loves you too. It's really Jesus, and it's all for Jesus. Lee, you, you can come on up. You know, loved ones, when I was in seminary, um, I remember one, one particular class, it wasn't a big class, but I was with a prof, and he was a dear man, man. He's one of these, he was a pastor, but he also taught in seminary, and just sincere, humble, sweetest man. He, one of the things he used to do before each class when we showed up, and never was in this way in any other class that I was a part of, but he grabbed his guitar, and he'd sit on the desk, and he would just sing this song. It was the same song every time we gathered. And he did it because he's a class, before we do anything else, all the knowledge and then the pursuit of trying to gain information to be used in some, he said, it really comes down to this, getting our minds and hearts in a place of perspective to receive the power of Jesus Christ, to have the purpose that is upon our lives. And it was the simple chorus song, beautiful song, uh, Jesus all for Jesus. And I remember in each class kind of went, I was so looking forward to because it just, in the midst of all the pursuits of that, which can be good, but some can be harmful too, and so much yourself gets so mixed into this. It just allowed you to take it as a prayer and to use it to say, Lord, what is my life really about? What am I actually trying to do right now? And who do I actually want to be? And so we end the service today with that simple, beautiful chorus that I'm really, really praying that you and I would use it as a prayer right now to say, Lord, why am I living? Can I become less that you become more? Who is it, Lord? Who is it that I would be used to prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus Christ? Lord, all my ambitions, all my plans, I surrender them to you, Lord. I surrender them to you. So Jesus, would you use this time? Would you make this a sweet response? Would you fill us with the perspective of what is true and right in the name of Jesus? Amen.